Hi everyone, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, just CSE. CSE is a 501c6 nonprofit workforce development association dedicated to helping grow, support, and sustain the professionals charged with the cybersecurity of control systems. We're specifically talking about those systems that have pumps and valves and actuators, real cyber to physical moving parts, and control nearly every aspect of our modern connected industries. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It's my hope you find it inspirational or motivating or revealing or informative, and perhaps at times even a little entertaining. Take care and be well. Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I've got a guest that I am super excited about having on today. Many people, you will either recognize this gentleman's name or companies that he has birthed or touched. Uh, I have Ron Gula, today of Gula Tech Ventures, but it would be hard to describe. I've got a list, you know, as I normally like to do a couple of one-word descriptors. I've amassed quite a list. Is known as a technologist, formerly trained as an electrical engineer, if you go all the way back. He's definitely a programmer, founder, a CEO, but he's also a military veteran. He's a United States Air Force veteran. He's a husband. He's a father. He's a podcasting enthusiast. He's a 3D animator, a cigar aficionado. He is an investor, advisor, and board member to many. He's a philanthropist near and dear to my heart. He is a scuba diver. And uh, welcome to the show, Ron. I can't wait to unpack your journey. Hey, Derek. Thanks for having us, having me today. Good to see you. Well, uh, Ron, I always uh, I make the same joke at the beginning of every one of these episodes that cybersecurity people are some sort of modern day superhero and superheroes have backstories. And so let's go all the way back. Uh, where uh, where did you come from? So I was born on a dark and stormy night. And <laughs> so I'm originally from upstate New York and uh, I was born in Rochester, grew up in Syracuse. And I went to college at uh, Clarkson University, where I had the good fortune of having the roommate of uh, Marty Roche, the guy who did uh, Sourcefire and Snort. And I suspect that has uh, some influence on your your story. I mean, I, I was looking at how back, how far back cybersecurity goes for you, and it goes back further than most people can say. Uh, you know, there's people who've joined it in the last 10 years. There's people who've joined it in the last 20 years. Back when it was called information security, you know, no cyber even in it. You, you go back, uh, you go back long ways. Yeah. Um, so if you were doing network security back in the the nineties, whether it was yeah. network security or infosec, whatever, you were learning Unix and you were learning firewalls and uh, you know basically how to do pen testing and port scanning and why SYN packets were better at quickly scanning than full full socket connections and stuff like that. So it was it was good times. So let's, we'll jump to uh, that. I, I like to ask sort of a primordial question. Did technology uh, cross your path as a youngster, you know, before graduating high school? Yeah, I uh, my dad worked at IBM. He did uh, the Big Iron. So anybody who knows the old IBM product line, he was a 3800 laser printer and the 390 CPUs. He would go and, and fix them. And, and that's when a computer was a computer, right? Like Colossus, the Forbin project, right? These are big things you could touch and stuff like that. So he always had oscilloscopes and and uh, various parts of computers to, to play with. And of course, I had a IBM PC right when they came out. I had a PC Junior. Uh, I also had an Atari 400, and I learned how to do programming, including assembly, uh, back when I was in, in high school, if not, if not earlier than that. I remember a, a neighbor friend whose dad worked for IBM, and he brought home, I believe it was called a Luggable. It was a huge box, and the keyboard clipped to the front of it, and it was just this amazing thing that he brought home from work. And then we were all like, what is that? That's really cool looking. I definitely had my share of geeky times with the with the computers back then. I was really into the, you know, modems, the dial-ups, the bulletin yeah. boards, seeing seeing what was going yeah. on there. 
And uh, you know, as computers got more interesting, you'd build your own computers and you'd learn how things worked and what sped things up and what was fun. So what, uh, with that influence, uh, you know, what, what did you choose to do graduating high school? Well, I, would, I always looked at computers as a hobby. My interest was always serving the country in the Air Force. My father was in the Air Force and uh, I wanted to be a pilot and uh, actually just enjoyed computers. I would build them to do flight simulators and that sort of stuff. And, but I was always, boy, if you saw me in the, the early 1990s, you know, right after school, I was talking about, you know, angles versus energy tactics with, uh, with fighter combat training and whatnot. And it wasn't until I actually got to flight school and realized that wasn't for me that uh, I said, I want to do computers as a, a, a full-time career. And there is this thing called hacking and this thing called cybersecurity that didn't exist yet, but it was emerging. And I, I was really drawn to that, that career field. Yeah. So that's early, uh, early 90s, if I'm not mistaken for you. So again, that's back to my earlier comment, you know, security for computers, you know, as early as almost anybody was, was working on that. Yeah. Back then, we didn't have Wi-Fi. You know, we didn't really, really have the internet, but it was emerging. It was emerging. And I, I got to read this book called The uh, Cuckoo's Egg. And that's the Cliff Stoll book that a lot of people read. And I highly recommend it's, it's still very relevant. You know, and when APT first came out, I was kind of like a little critical of it because I'm like, this, this is how people have been hacking forever, right? Right. It's not just smash and grab. It's if you're going to do long term surveillance over a network, you got to have these stealthy kind of things. Anyway, I found the people that was mentioned in the book at the NSA and I went to work there. And uh, a lot of people don't realize this, even though we have NSA and Cyber Command today, but NSA has a very, very large defensive mission where they secure you know, all the DOD's computers and, and well, that, that, that's not entirely true, but you know, they, they secure like the important nuclear weapons communications and stuff like that. And I was in that, that kind of group and we would do penetration testing. And uh, that was a lot of fun. Learned a lot about people and technology and bureaucracy. And a lot of those lessons still hold true today. Any, any funny stories or, you know, from that era, or like you said, lessons learned that today are, you know, like still valid, you know, still the sort of, that, that's the primordial phase, right? The primordial ooze phase. Ooze phase yeah, years. the technology has completely changed, right? Yeah. So I'm not, not going to make a lot of specific comments on, you know, hacking into classified networks and whatnot. But, you know, if you go into a room of system administrators and you're thinking you're some kind of hot uh, young pen tester and you know, you want to like point out the admin who did a bad job setting that up. That's going to be a bad experience for you. And, uh, you know, trying to really see, you know, you can't, you can't fix everything, you know, from an IT point of view. So that was probably one of my worst experiences is uh, trying to out some admin who didn't do their job when in fact they were overworked, underpaid, underfunded, that kind of stuff. So that was a good lesson to learn as a young, you know, person. But uh, yeah, yeah, I literally tried to call out an admin and he, he raised his hand from the back room was like, yeah, that was my account. I had to work like three weekends after that, you know, so I was like, yeah, we got to we have to change the way we're doing doing assessments here. Yeah, that you've probably just touched on sort of what I always am mining in these sessions for gold nuggets, which is tearing else someone else down, which is unfortunately common for a lot of people gains you gains us nothing and it, it doesn't really move us towards towards success. I love that story early, early in your career path, but it's true for all of us, right? There's a lot of power or a lot of value to be obtained by figuring out how do we accomplish this mission? Maybe there's a constructive criticism due or an improvement due, but how do we do without tearing people down? Well, it's it's interesting too, because anybody who knows my background will get to, to Tenable and Nessus vulnerability scanning. They're going to say, hey, wait a second, right? Anytime I do a Nessus vulnerability scan, I would get, uh, you know, weeks and weeks worth of work. And, you know, our co-founder at, at, at Tenable, Renault, the, the creator of Nessus, you know, he'd always say like, look, don't put us in charge of your of your IT. We're here to measure how good your IT really is. 
And uh, I still run into people today, they scan with Nessus, they patch all their vulnerabilities, and then they don't do anything until they scan like a week later, a month later. And that's the wrong way to do security, especially in 2023. Yeah. You know, we our annual report is showing assessments that between a couple of years, the, like last year, it showed annual assessments. Uh, people reporting doing annual assessments went down. And we're like, that can't be the case. And then we looked that quarterly and even monthly had all risen. And uh, so only annual had only gone down in the context of people doing more frequently assessing and looking at the you know, their posture. Well, even just assessing what do I have, right? You know, step yeah. one of the NIST cybersecurity framework is difficult, right? You have to talk to your procurement people, make sure marketing didn't spend up like another instant of Salesforce to do some, you know, CRM campaign, make sure that there's no you know, servers running out of this other account on, on AM. How do you even find all this stuff today? So it's uh, it's very interesting how we go about doing that kind of stuff. But yes, the um, the NSA, I got to audit a lot of really, really big networks. I got to go speak to people who wanted a magic button to make all their cybersecurity problems go away. And of course, those don't exist. And, uh, you know, I got to really learn a lot about, uh, you know, all sorts of different kinds of uh, of technology. I'm always curious as a as a lifelong entrepreneur myself, everybody's sort of journey. Those those experiences must have been very informative when you did start your first company, which wasn't Tenable. We'll get to it. It was a different company before Tenable. You founded a company or co-founded one. We're getting that early experience was pretty informative to that process of starting something for yourself. Yeah, a lot of you know people say, hey, you know, if you if you're a vet, you know, you really can't do the founding thing. You got to go to Silicon Valley. It's not it's not true, right? So if you're going to be a leader. You have to take care of your people. You have to know what the mission is. You have to have have a goal and and you have to have the the resources to accomplish your mission. And that's you can get that in the government. You can get that in the in the military. You can get that in Silicon Valley. You can get that going a lot of places. But I was able to pick up all sorts of what I felt were like management styles and things that resonated with me that by the time we did our first company, I was like, look, I want to do that. Like, that's how I want to treat my people. That's how I want to treat my customers. This is what I want to, uh, to you know, to, to be able to, to, to goal for here. And uh, so we were able to do that. The company was Network Security Wizards. It was the, the first uh, sort of, I, I say, native Linux uh, network intrusion detection systems. Although many, there were many network IDSs that came before it that ran on, on Unix. We really hit the stride when Linux was getting popularity. We had a lot of customers who were really interested in running Linux SSHing into their Linux box and then literally looking through the logs, almost like a Splunk type console in like the mid, the late 90s. You know, this is what our customers were doing and doing full packet analysis, doing some statistics, doing all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of fun with that. That was a lot of, a lot of neat things you could do with that kind of tech. I love, I love the network security wizards and that the product had, had Dragon in it. It's, uh, it's like there's some DD playing, uh, you know, maybe in people's past here. Yeah, there's a bit of there's a bit of the dragon from Dungeons and Dragons uh, in that. Uh, we definitely have a fantasy streak at the Gulas, but it's big, it's, there's a bigger sci-fi streak here. Yeah. But uh, it's good, good stuff. Yeah. So, what's the short story of a you know cool story of sort of dragon and network security, and it, you ended up that company got acquired by another company, and you in, you ended up going there for some time. Yeah. So the the story I always tell is that you know you never realize what can inspire somebody, and and when I was at um, uh, there's a company called U.S. Internetworking in Annapolis, Maryland. It was one, really one of the first cloud companies. We, we were running PeopleSoft and Oracle on other people's behalf, um, not just managed, but truly a SaaS type of offering. So while there, I was working with Internet Security Systems, which is one of the pioneers of um, vulnerability scanning and intrusion detection. A lot of great technologies come out of that company. 
but the way they went to market, you couldn't change the rules. So I was running, you know, ISS real secure. I had a need to change the rules. They did not let you change the rules. You know, you could turn them on and off. You couldn't modify them. And I said, oh, well, I know how to do this. And I started build, building some, some, uh, some stuff as a product and, uh, you know, basically came up with, uh, with Dragon. And then once you start looking at attacks, I would have uh, all the different kind of attacks and exploits that were available at the time. You know, you'd run them and you could see what can you find that's what's a good rule. And there was a really good community of people who would share uh, indicators. Nobody called them indicators of compromise, but I'll say that now because everybody knows what that is. And then you debate on how to do that. And then you can never do everything perfect. There's always somebody with a better way to do it. But one of the things Dragon was really good at was detecting buffer overflows really, really poorly. Because if you have a buffer overflow, you have something called a no-op sled where you have, you basically jump to where your code is, and you might not know exactly where that is, but in the day, it was typically A, you know, the the hex character for A. And uh, you could change it to anything you want, but anyway, we we would put these rules looking for large strings of A's, and it caught a lot of things. And after a while, it wasn't that good because you had a lot of false positives with it. So that's that's a story I think anybody who's doing a startup for detecting things should realize, like the tech and the hackers move so fast. What can be a hot detection that could be a selling feature on a product today could be a false positive within six months. And I'm seeing this already with AI SOC analysis tools, anomaly detection tools. Uh, you know, so this is a very dynamic environment that we're trying to protect. Yeah, and I do want to I want to talk to you about AI because I think that is coming up a lot. It's on people's mind. It's certainly inducing fear in some people. There's lots of unknowns and and, and lots of excitement as well. It just depends on what somebody's reading or consuming and what their background, you know, perspective is. Uh, yours will be, it would be interesting to get on that. So let's come back to that. On this topic, a lot of people ask that starting a company thing, you know, where does it come from? How does it start? And what it sounded like there was just observing, not inventing wholly, like you said, intrusion detection, but 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 seeing there was an unmet need within something, within a product category that already existed. That's how that started. And that's an interesting aha moment that people can say, oh, I don't have to actually create something nobody's ever heard of. And there's a whole risk factor that comes with that. Uh, I could make something better or make something more versatile. So there's there's really two big comments there. So the, the first one is, you know, there's nothing in cyber that's that's really brand new. It's it's only slightly more perfection, slightly easier. And and then the question is, is if it's only a little bit better than the current market out there, like let's say it's five percent better. I, I like to, I've got some videos out there is, you know, how much product, how much better does a product need to be for it to be be swapped out? You know, if it's five percent better, that doesn't sound that interesting. But if I can be five percent better at at uh, detecting attacks on the network, stopping phishing, you know, preventing DNS lookups, that might be a not enough for me to switch out a product. But that's enough for me to beat the current product a hundred percent of the time. So the industry is really having a hard time trying to measure the efficacy of these things because it becomes very subjective and very hard to reproduce without bias. Imagine I had five zero-day attacks. And I had malware exploiting every one of them. I'm going to tell everybody about that. You're right. Well, that's not going to work, right? And so now you have these old attacks that the attacker is going to move on. It's not not really really could do it. But then the second thing is you don't have to boil the ocean, right? If you're going to do a startup, do you have a way to solve something that people are willing to pay money for, and they're going to be better off if they use the product? If that answer is yes, and you can deliver that technology then start a company and do that because we need the help. We absolutely need the help. Don't feel like you've got to like solve a hundred different things. I see this in pitch decks quite a bit. 
where it's like a 92 step process to solving all your cybersecurity need. That's tough. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it all. Once, yeah. <laughs> one product, one shop. Yeah. The, I noticed, you, you know, how long did you stay at the company uh, that bought uh, Wizards? Yeah, so we, uh, Network Security Wizards was bought. Uh, we had a couple offers. We didn't use venture capital, didn't really do any bankers. We had a couple offers. It was pretty interesting. Uh, we went with Interesis Networks, and I thought at the time, I still feel like this today, that the network should be very involved in protecting you or me. Right now, people just use the network for transport. The network's not doing a whole lot to protect you, and uh, it's it's an interesting thing. But they were able to put uh, Dragon in a, in a couple things. Uh, Dragon's still still out there today, and it's which is kind of kind of interesting. But I ended up staying there two years out of a three year earnout. And uh, this is a type of thing where you get you get bought by a company, it's stock, and you're supposed to get the stock issued to you every year. Uh, mine was a three. I left early to start Tenable, and uh, that's uh, and the person who joined me was uh, Jack Hufford, and uh, we co-founded Tenable, and uh, he uh, he was the one who did the acquisition of Dragon in the first place. Well, there you go. And going two years is longer than most uh, make it statistically, at least. Uh, that post-acquisition life can be uh, can can for founders can be quite interesting. For, the, for us, seeing the inside of a public company, mm-hmm. understanding things like two-tier channel distribution, uh, having the channel service customers, having a customer success team, have different levels of support, having international so like I didn't have any of that, and we were right. exposed to all of that, and that was was amazing. It was uh, it's a well-run company. It suffered a little bit from, you know, Cisco envy. You know, we're not uh, the big Cisco, but uh, for the most part, it was a great company with great people, with great products. And uh, we learned a lot about uh, network switching, procurement, all, all that stuff. And so what was the kernel, the original little flame that became tenable? What, what caused that? So a little bit was guilt because, you know, Dragon were sitting there basically detecting people breaking in. Tenable was a way to tell you ahead of time how people would break in so you could prevent that. And, you know, the intrusion detection market flipped overnight from intrusion detection to intrusion prevention. And, you know, it's it's one way to do it on a network. It's another way to actually patch all your stuff and uh, understand what your stuff is in the first place. So you can you can see, you know, what you actually are, are, are defending in the first place. So Tenable was all about visibility and trending and understanding when you have a big problem or little problems. And so that was a problem. There was a problem identified. Did you know, I mean, was it like, we, we know how we're going to go out doing it? Or was it a little bit like, we know there's a problem. We're just going to, we're going to, we're going to set out to fix it. You know, how, how resolute were you on the solution to that problem? So it's interesting because at the time in uh, the early 2000s, you know, when you were going to do a vulnerability scan, that was almost like the next step after a network port scan where you would enumerate all your hosts. But, but right away, anybody who's done these things, they know that a host can be configured to not respond to a port scan, right? There could be services that I'm running that I'm not running when the port scan's running. If I scan in the evening, my computer might not be there, right? So we knew very early in the time of Tenable that not only were, did you have to solve these kind of things, but we also knew the technology was coming, right? Like Wi-Fi was coming, uh, you had virtualization was coming, you had all these different mobile apps that were coming. And of course, in, in the early 2000s, we didn't know the cloud was was coming as big, but once you start predicting where these things are going, you have to then say, well, now we got to audit that kind of stuff. So Tenable was always like a generation ahead of what I felt like the cyber public's demands were for detecting assets and vulnerabilities. 
And I used to joke that we were like Willy Wonka, like we're coming up with flavors and candies that nobody's ever heard of. But uh, at the time, nobody had ever done those kind of things. Whereas today, it's a little bit commonplace to take, to do a multi sort of database approach of bringing all your assets, bringing all your vulnerabilities, all your, your attacks into, into one place. Back in the early 2000s, this was something new. Uh, people had tried to do it with, with GRC, but the GRCs typically didn't have the horsepower and database to you know, handle a credentialed agent-based patch audit for a, 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 you know, a, a Linux server. And then on top of that, do something for like a Center for Internet Security configuration audit on top of that. And that's what uh, Tenel was really, really good at. So I don't know how you do, how you encapsulate 20, what is it, 21, 22 years since its founding. But for maybe some listeners who aren't familiar with Tenable's story, you know, it's, and it's a pretty amazing story. You know, as a lifelong entrepreneur, I am a, have a healthy respect for how many companies get to that sort of size. It's not most uh, or get to that sort of impact and magnitude, whether you want to measure revenue or, or number of employees or what you're doing, you know, how many global customers you had, all those sorts of things. How would you describe that, that experience? Oh, there's a, I, I get the chance to talk about it uh, a lot. And uh, first thing I'll say is it wasn't just me. I had a lot of people there. There's a lot of great people still there. Meet's doing a really, really good job keeping the company on pace, you know, its place in the industry, keeping the things moving forward. But for people who are not familiar with, with the story, there's a couple really interesting lessons to, uh, to, to learn. The, the first one is, you know, the company was so well regarded and had so many customers that paid for it. Um, you know, when we raised that money, that money was all secondary. So we did two big rounds. We did a $50 million round and we did a, a, a almost a $300 million round a couple of years after that, which set the company to go public a couple of years ago. But typically when you raise money, if you hear about companies raising their Series D, their pre-IPO Series D or their Series C, or you hear somebody raised $100 million, that money typically goes on the balance sheet. And that money is for hiring more people, buying equipment, paying for the cloud, paying for marketing. And so, and, those, and if your business model, which is 90% of the companies out there needs that, that's what they do. That's what Venture does. In Tenable's case, the company was so profitable that that money all went to the employees. So we had that moment where we were able to pull people in and literally say, hey, we raised $50 million. It's all secondary. We had to pause and explain what secondary was and instantly created people who took a chance on us. You know, People were able to pay off their college loans, their their houses, you know, put some money in the bank, that sort of thing. And that is a really powerful thing. And that should be anybody who times somebody's starting a company and they're thinking about how do I take care of my family, how to take care of my employees, how to take, that should be the goal. Put money in their pocket, you know, make them want to be at that company forever and so on. But the second thing that Tenable was able to really do is we actually took probably the world's most popular open source product and closed sourced it. So Nessus used to be very, very open source, and that code's still out there, but we move forward. And, and the story I tell about that is not so much about open source, closed source, what's the right thing. It's like, that was a fundamental thing that was holding Tenable back. Like, we did not want to have that used against us. We did not want it to have, uh, there was limitations with that. It was basically something that if we didn't address and address it correctly, would have been a huge detriment of uh, growing Tenable, doing more innovation, putting more things that are benefiting the customers out there. And I tell that story not to kind of relive the past because that, that, you know, that people who are big open source fans, that's controversial. What I tell all of the companies I work with is they all have some sort of third rail, some sort of religious argument that's holding the company back and they're not willing to do that. 
just to keep on talking about Tenable, like Tenable doesn't do remediation. That's We've always been very, we're not going to patch. We're not going to fix a config. We're not going to change the admin password on a router for you, even though we're pointing that out. And that's something that's a principle of what, what we've been doing. Every company out there that we work with, it always has some sort of third rail where, boy, if they address this problem, they could probably be or like a, a rocket ship, which support the customers better, better be more profitable, have better user experience, all those kind of things. Oh, man, there's so many different things we could unpack. You touched on the open source thing is a touchy sort of subject. Are you, you know, what is your opinion if, if that's not too controversial to sort of put it out there? Because people right now are asking themselves, especially with supply chain discoveries of the last couple of years, like, what's inside my stuff? And who made it? And open source is a part of the supply chain for some people and has potentially some problems with it. You know, I'm, I'm sort of neutral on it because I can see some amazing innovation possibilities the way it works sometimes, but some liabilities that come with it. Where do you come down on that? Well, the world has changed. The, when we started Tenable, we literally had to sign documents to paying customers that said if they got sued for using the open source software that we wrote, that we would indemnify them, right? Now think about that. You're starting a company, you're selling to a big bank, and all of a sudden you're gonna, yeah, hey, we're on the hook for possibly that. Like, and it could be lawsuits from, um, you know, people who just claim that it's a copyright issue or, or, hey, that code looks a lot like this code over there. But then there's the other issue, like, okay, well, how long are we gonna support this? You know, we, a big part of Nessus wasn't the engine. Well, they, I'd get slapped around if I said that a little bit too. The engine enabled all of these plugins to run. And these plugins had to have a huge update of, of what worked and what didn't work. Anytime you hear about a patch Tuesday, you should think about all of the vulnerability researchers at Tenable and all the other people who audit uh, vulnerabilities trying to write a check that's a good check. Some of these checks you have to be so specific on, you're almost reverse engineering it from an exploitation point of view. So there's a huge amount of effort to put that in there. And it wasn't really something the typical person in who had maybe a couple of virtual systems could do when you look at the breadth of everything that was out there. And actually, if you look at programs like Microsoft today, where they have the map program, where they give away new vulnerabilities and exploits and an APT that's out there, you can't put something like that into an open source project earlier than later. So a lot of different issues. My last comment, comment on open source, though, is that the majority of open source today lives behind a commercial SaaS app. So when you see a great application that's SaaS only, there's probably a lot of open source behind that enabling that and good, good for them, but it probably prevents them from going on-prem and uh, doing a private experience of that, of that technology. Hey everybody, Derek Harp here, and I just want to take a brief moment to thank three companies that make this podcast series possible. The first company is Waterfall Security Solutions, and they led the charge this year for the podcast, and they specifically sponsored it from their podcast, the Industrial Security Podcast. So check that out. That's a great linkage to an entire other series of over 100 episodes. They had their anniversary recently, focused on control system cybersecurity, and they were supported this year by KPMG and Fortinet. We could not do this without them. These companies not only have supported this podcast series this year, but they've supported CSA since its very early days eight years ago. And we're entirely grateful to the teams and dedicated professionals at Waterfall Security Solutions, KPMG, and Fortinet. What from your tenable years, anything that you would, you know, we we know we've got entrepreneurs that come to our community. We, we've just passed 30,000 people and they're the great mix. But they raise their hand or, or send in messages uh, or ask questions during events. And it's around around starting companies, you know, and, and they're seeking their, you know, their confidence and path to do it. 
I'm sure you've done it on the stage of many, many different places or advice to, to those individuals. If there was, you know, one or two things you wanted to distill out of a whole career of doing it, what, what would you share with them? Well, the first thing is, uh, you know, why are you doing this? Do you have a passion to solve this particular thing? Do you have uh, experience in that? Do you feel like a, a commercial solution is going to be the right way to do that? And, and we talk about philanthropy a, a little bit. A lot of times we get pitched by companies and sometimes we don't know if they're a nonprofit or if they're a for-profit company. And a lot of times I'll ask people, hey, if I gave you $2 million a day to open source this right now and put it out there for free to everybody, you know, would you do that? And there's business models out there like Signal, for example, and you know, certain browsers where there's an open source component, but 99% of what everybody does, they use a, a freemium type of, uh, type, type of thing. So the first question is, why do you want to do it? What problem are you solving? And then the second, I got a whole five series of questions, but the, but the bottom line though, is what does success look like? And a lot of times with these founders, sometimes success looks like fame and fortune. And I got to tell you, if your goal is fame and fortune, that's, you know, God bless capitalism, God bless the, the US and, and stuff like that. But a lot of times if, if their primary goal is to make money, that's typically not somebody who, that's a byproduct of, of doing a well-run company and that sort of thing. But having said that, not paying attention to the financial outcomes of how it changes your life, your employee's life, your family's life, is a really, really important thing. I see people all the time, oh, I wanna go public someday. I wanna be a public company CEO. Great, there's a lot of ways to do that. You don't have to create a company and ride that horse all the way to a public offering. There's uh, there's also a lot of ways to create wealth. And I've had a lot, plenty of companies where they sell, plenty of company founders, they'll sell five, 10, $15 million exit four or five times in a row, and they love it. Other companies, founders are like big company founders. So I just try to tell people there's a lot of different ways to be effective and be successful. It sounds like embedded in that advice is look in the mirror when no one's around and be honest with yourself of what your motivation is and what you want to do. And, and don't in, don't act or take actions that are incongruent with with that, I would suspect, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that makes that makes sense. That's good advice. What do you do with Tenable today? I know that you you know we're going to get to to what you're doing, and I know you spend a lot of time doing some really good good work and in investing in and philanthropy. But what's this sort of Tenable touching Tenable still in any way? And, and yeah, what officially officially no official thing. Yeah. But I, where I'm based in Maryland, Howard County, they're headquartered here, so there's a lot of interactions. They're yeah. mostly social and supportive, and uh, you know they have a venture capital program, they have an M and A program, and uh, you know we meet with them the same way we would meet other companies that are out there and uh, you know it's definitely an interesting thing being in the town with the, with the big building out there it's uh, it's a good we're the biggest fans my wife and i like to say we're the biggest official fans so when you stepped away from it what did you, did you know what you wanted to do and you, did, did you form google tech ventures immediately or was there a, a you know a, a hiatus well it's funny my uh jack hufford always says like i always talked about doing venture capital I always talked about doing investing and you know we did a couple investments at Tenable and uh, I really had a good time with that. My wife and I were pretty involved with that. And when we left, we said, hey, look, we want to do this. But you know, given my NSA experience, my experience with the federal government, because Tenable had a site license for, for scanning the DOD and it's a program called ACAS. There's another one that DHS uses and stuff. So I had a lot of like experience with the federal government. I said, we want to share this knowledge. And we had also done a lot of philanthropy. So we didn't really come up with Google Tech Adventures until probably like a year or two after we we uh, we, we left because we were really looking at maybe doing an incubator and a couple of other models. So anyway, we we took some time, we did some investments, we learned, and uh, the, what we settled on with uh, Google Tech Adventures, there's a 
we, we did an interview once. Somebody called us a, uh, a, a cyber action hub, a cyber activity hub, which is this combination of investing, philanthropy, and policy stuff. So um, we've been doing at this. We're, we've been at this for about uh, about four or five years now. Yeah, and and I know that this is a probably a good time as any to talk about sort of the nexus to operating technology and control systems. Tenable has gotten uh, offerings in that in that area and practice area eventually. So I wanted to talk about sort of when that came up. Uh, but then you also have invested in companies that have a nexus with uh, you know with this space. So I was sort of curious what your comments and observations and what the Tenable you know when the Tenable entity began to look at the operating technology ICS sort of networks. And, you know, just active scanning being a very scary, scary thing to plant operators and all these stories out there about using tools uh, that, that uh, actively, you know, interrogated the endpoint and brought the plant down. So I'm just super curious around this sort of the OTICS nexus for you, for Tenable, uh, and, and, for, and for today, you know, things with Google Tech Venture. So back when I was, was, was CEO of Tenable, you know, we looked at the ICS problem. You know, in, interestingly, because you know, if you found a vulnerability on like a Schneider Electric, you know, app, you know, system, well, is that something we have to call them? Is that a zero day? What was what, there? And then if you know about a vulnerability and you're scanning it on a network, maybe they don't want to tell anybody they haven't patched that, and maybe it's not a big deal because it's not on the the, the internet, right? So these things are a lot of these are air gap. But Tenable did a couple investments in this area. One area we we spent a lot of time doing configuration audits. We wanted to make sure that we could make sure if the machine was configured correctly. Uh, we also did audits specifically to, uh, you know, the ICS. We did like ICSP, Modbus, DNP3, that sort of stuff. But the thing that I was probably the most proud about is we did this passive vulnerability scanner where we kind of took the dragon experience of looking at packets and we said, what could we do packet by packet? What could we, could we build up a, a, a vulnerability scan in the internet? And uh, so we did that. And, and Tenable now has it, I think it's called like Tenable Industrial Defender now, or or Nessus Passive Scan. I've, I've, I've they've they've played around with the, the titles a couple times, but the basic concept of that thing's always on, and that was really, uh, I think, really well done uh, for finding those kind of vulnerabilities in that kind of environment. Yeah, and that's breakthrough stuff for operators to feel comfortable with, you know, with cybersecurity approaches. Like, is it safe to run? And clearly, that, that something like that. And there, I mean, there certainly are horror stories that I pinged the device and the power went off, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. But that's also very indicative of a poorly run network. So, yeah. Yeah. What are you seeing? You know, you now see a lot of investment uh, opportunities. Um, you're on many, many boards. What do you see in this space uh, in the OT? In specifically, in specifically ICS? Yeah. Yeah. So we're LPs in a couple of the other cyber funds. One of them is Datatrod. And of course, the big investment in this space is, uh, is Dragos. So it's another Maryland company. Uh, you know, Rob Lee's CEO over there. So we're, we're tracking what they do. I'm not very hands-on with, with it. I'm supportive. I interact every now and then. Our direct investment in this space is a company called Fend. Fend makes optical isolating network devices. So basically, if you want to like read a temperature or a coil or move a, a, a file one way off of a network into maybe a cloud app, that's a good way of, of doing that. Otherwise, if you're doing it with a computer, that's an attack path, right? That's how people broke into Target through the air conditioning system, right? So, they, so we can do some stuff there. We've seen a lot of different things. We've even seen stuff on the philanthropy side, just uh, you know, educating people about ICS uh, vulnerabilities, operational technology vulnerabilities. You know, are there OTs different than, than IT? Uh, we still see it as like it niches the wrong word, right? Like, like Active Directory is not niche, right? It's one computer in your thousands of computers on a Windows network, right? 
But we've seen the OT computers looked as just a few more computers. And I actually got educated recently. We were looking at a company, I don't want to say which one because we didn't ultimately invest in it. But when I was running Tenable, if you had a 10,000 node network and there was an OT network to it, it might've been 100 computers, uh, 1,000 computers. And I can remember my sales team at Tenable saying, look, we can't license ICS auditing based on number because there aren't enough. Well, now, if there's a 10,000 node network next to an OT network, it's probably about another 10,000 nodes. And uh, so these OT networks have gotten really big and you know, people don't patch them. People don't secure them. They're set up for reliability, not for, you know, I guess reliability, except for when in the face of, you know, a threat who's trying to take it down, perhaps. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, all that is true. The fundamentals are different. The technology stack, the refresh rate is, there's Windows 3X still out there living, living in, in, all, in a lot of these environments from my friends who are two hands on audits. So like, yep, still find it. Lots of XP, of course, in the industrial base. And, um, and so it just, yeah, it fundamentally sort of behaves, behaves differently. But you're right, endpoint proliferation, uh, the number of addressable devices, it's gone way up. And we've seen, we've seen products, companies, you know, I, I don't want to talk about who we passed on specifically, I speak generally, but like OT for power might be a whole vertical where you'll see everything in the cyber stack, uh, asset scanning, vulnerability management, applying patches, anomaly detection, uh, a SIM specifically for that, and that's fine. And then we'll see the same thing in healthcare. You know, where someone's going to try to solve the problems for the CAT scanner, the X-ray machine, yeah. right? The, yeah. the the COVID test machine and whatnot. And then we'll see the same thing for aviation, you know, where there's aviation-specific database audits and, and stuff like this. So I think this is good. It's an evidence of the maturity of uh, the cyber market. But at the same time, you tend to see the same technologies kind of recycled and reused. So it's definitely interesting. Yeah, that spawns a whole lot of other questions too. But for my own curiosity, I, I just have to ask, Long term, they can't, those all don't exist in each of those verticalizations, right? It, it, it might work early on, but you're not going to have similar stuff, but in 18 different verticals, right? It doesn't end up panning out that way, does it? I never met the same network twice. And I've never met a CISO who has the same exact network stack, cyber defense stack, as anybody else. Even if they say, hey, we're a CrowdStrike, Tenable, Microsoft shop, when you start seeing their choices for, you know, patching and authentication and, uh, you know, uh, identity access management, it's, it, it's, it changes a lot. Oh, by the way, and who, which one's a vendor, which one's a managed service, it gets, it gets really interesting really quick and really different. Well, let's talk about uh, Google Tech Ventures and, uh, and what you're doing there. I think it's important uh, we don't you know, run out of time and not talk about it because you're doing some pretty pivotal things. You talked about sort of three areas, investment, philanthropy, and policy. So if you could maybe break that down a little bit and talk about some of these grants and how people go about applying for those, that can be a very, very big deal to some organizations that are out there. I appreciate that. So Google Tech Adventures, we, we call it an adventure because it's it's not just venture investing. It's not just philanthropy. It's not just a think tanky stuff. It's all funded by, by my wife and myself. And uh, what we've been doing is focusing mostly on investing. Uh, we've currently got about 32 investments. Everything's at Gula.tech. We've been doing this for about five years. We've had a good, good series of ideas. I don't have in front of me about 15 or so. Of course, 2022, 2023, that slowed down a little bit because the market pulled back. But that's, you know, markets, markets do these kind of things. It's, 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 it's interesting. We've been fairly stage agnostic. So we'll do seed deals. We'll do series C. We'll do, uh, we'll actually do some non-cyber occasionally, especially if we can learn about the market. Kind of what I was saying about these companies who do power and healthcare and that sort of thing. I, I, we do like to have some non-cyber investments so we can learn about those, those markets. Then the philanthropy side, uh, we, we came up with, uh, with this approach that we didn't just want to be like 
randomly philanthropic, right? So we wanted to be very purposeful and we wanted to actually start trying to attack some of the different problems that are kind of holding back the cybersecurity industry or maybe, you know, not making it as effective as it, as it could be. So we also wanted to kind of go to our roots as well, because we weren't going to do like a, 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 you know, hire a staff to like, you know, research, you know, all these different things that are out there. We want to be very personal with the folks who were, we, we were going to work with on the nonprofit side. So we came up with something called uh, the Google Tech Foundation, which what we do is we do grants that are competitive and topic based. So we're we've done they're all listed at Google.tech on the foundation page and they've tackled issues as uh, something as specific as getting more African-Americans engaged with cybersecurity to now we're actually doing a, a grant competition. We actually just closed applications for cybersecurity nonprofits that support the national cybersecurity strategy. Each of these grants, uh, we do a million dollar grant. Um, we might break it up to uh, first, second, third place winners. Uh, we might we might do a larger check depending on depending on who's out there. But what this has allowed us to do is really kind of see what kind of problems that that are out there. When you look at things like getting more engagement in cybersecurity, one of the things that we realize is that the word cyber itself and security is a non-starter with so many people. Sometimes it's a militaristic you know, hey, I'm running towards the fire. And that's great. We have a lot of people like that, but it's not the bulk of people. And, you know, sometimes it can be a little offensive. We looked at the word security. We got feedback. Security is a non-starter with certain communities. And, uh, you know, so we came up with something called data care. My wife was drinking coffee. She said, I would not be going into cybersecurity, you know, knowing what I knew now if I was, you know, 17 or 19. And she wanted to call it data care. And we have been pushing this concept of making cyber more not only accessible as a career to people but putting some personal responsibility in boards all the way to individuals out there with that so we're pushing all that that sorts sort of stuff on the policy side because of everything i just talked about we do get asked hey can you come and talk about ai can you come and talk about you know privacy can you come and talk about you know uh hey you know is our, is our intelligence community doing the right sorts of things when it comes to privacy and balancing defenses and national priorities. So we've been uh, very lucky to be involved with some very interesting behind the door kind of conversations, uh, but we're not a think tank, we're not a lobbyist, we're just trying to, to share uh, as much as we can, not only about Gula Tech, but our experience with Tenable and uh, you know just everything we've been able to be fortunate to have a front row seat at for the last 25, 30 years. Well, you know, uh, there's, we can do a podcast just on just on some pieces that you just shared. But you, you brought up the word that I said well, I wanted to get back to. It's 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 just coming up so frequently for us. You know, AI, AI this and AI that, and fears and, and, and excitement. And what do you yeah? What do you say about that when you're addressing that? So I've personally been using AI for all of my media creations. I'm a big Mid Journey fan. I will create art Mid Journey. Uh, I think it's it's more about the imagination and trying to, you know, what kind of image can I use for that? I will then use uh, DaVinci Resolve for all my podcast editing and I'll try to put my, you know, pictures up the right and animate them accordingly and stuff like that. And then I'm using it for research. Hey, summarize this document. I'm on Claude, Claude AA right now. I'm not into the open AI stuff any, any, anymore. I try to track all that kind of stuff. That's one thing. The second thing is you look at all of our companies. We've got two companies that are basically deep AI, uh, you know, type of, uh, and they've been doing this for four or five years, not just because of what happened with chat GPT and so on. And almost every other company is either AI agnostic, where they are not using AI for any type of analysis, it's just not applicable, or they're adding it in. Uh, so for example, we've got a company called Gravwell, 
and uh, they're working on adding you know, AI analysis of logs and anomalies and, and that sort of thing. And so now, and then as a vendor, as a venture capital person, we're seeing people pitch us AI stuff. Now, you can imagine every cyber widget that's out there, somebody has come up with a way to add ChatGPT, OpenAI to that. So, we're pretty, so all that being said, really, really versed in who owns the IP, where is my data going? Uh, does this actually do something new? Can I replace a person with this, right? Who actually owns this, you know, going forward? And we've had some pretty deep conversations with Microsoft and, uh, and OpenAI about, uh, about this sort of stuff. And there's a couple of new vendors out there that are coming out with, with all sorts of things as well. So yeah, what would you like to talk about? Well, there's so much there, but I think you, you, you touched on it, that it's, it's a legitimate new phase that we're into and new being relative that's been being worked on for a while, but it's becoming more mainstream with tools available to break down to individuals, whether it's, you know, manipulating, um, you know, images in, in the journey or, or give you a, a, a very good example of, of things. We're, we're investors in a company called Conceal. It's a browser plugin that lets you basically do threat filtering at the browser. And if you do have a threat, it puts you into browser isolation, right? So you're not going to click on something and get owned, download a malicious PDF, that sort of thing. The way they were doing it is they were procuring threat intelligence from a number of places, and including rolling some of their own and using that as a simple uh, you know, indicators of compromise filter. They replaced that with their own AI engine. They were able to do enough research that they could develop a, a, a really good, call it a heuristic, call it an AI, call it whatever you want to call it. It's been pretty effective. And that's wow. a way that changes their business model because now they're not dependent on third party sort of threat feeds. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of AI uses that I, I'm really, you know, really happy to, to see. Yeah, that is very cool. I'm going to have to check, check that out. Is it available? Is the product available? They're working on a, a, a personal download, but it's really more for small business, small enterprise, where if you are going to deploy like an EDR, that's a pretty, you got to put an agent, you got to install that type of stuff. That could be hard to do for smaller business, whereas this is a browser plugin, which you can push out from, you know, G Suite or other other forms of, of yeah. management. Yeah, super. Uh, well, Ron, um, I may just have to, you know, in, in, in six months, say, come back and let's do chapter two, because there's like four different threads I wanted to pull each, uh, e you know, each, each, uh, every few minutes uh, with you. But any final sort of words of wisdom for the cybersecurity industry you want to pass on before we, before we end this episode? Yeah, I would tell everybody that, that uh, look, you know, you're not done. This is not, uh, this fight's not over. Uh, we should all be recruiting more people to that. So, and if you, uh, if you want to, you know, recruit more people, think about the term data care that we uh, that I, I spoke about a little bit before. And if you are at all entrepreneur in nature and you want to think about starting a company, I generally say go start a services company first where you can get the memory muscle of running, having an employee. It can be an awkward thing, right? You know, but then out of that services company, if you have an idea for a product, you, you know, you might have something that creates the next, uh, the next whiz, the next tenable, the next, uh, you know, whatever, whatever company that you're looking up to. So, um, you know, use all that for inspiration. Don't feel like you're late to the party and uh, the, the nation needs you. And it, uh, you know, think about all the future employees that you could be helping. That is awesome advice and resonates super strongly with me. I think I can think of one of my companies in my past that if we built professional services, we could have given a lot more time for product market fit and market maturity. <laughs> but uh, save advice. So Ron, I like to end the show with something called the Pivot Questionnaire, which I've borrowed from Inside the Actor's Studio. 
uh, James Lipton was the host for many, many years until he passed on. And he asked all the great actors and actresses this same exact 10 questions, which he borrowed from a French show, hence the name of the questionnaire. And I have not changed it at all. And uh, if you're up for it, we'll end our time together with the Pivot questionnaire. Go for it. All right. What is your favorite word? Well, purple, which I know is a color, but that's one of my favorite words. What is your least favorite word? Uh, I don't have a least favorite word. That's that's a not interesting question for me. What turns you on either creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Uh, uh, progressive music. Big fans of Yes, Genesis, Rush, and I'm, I'm into bands like Neil Morris and IQ. That, that I get a lot of inspiration out of that stuff. What turns you on? Usually politics, you know, the news. I think people overanalyze. We're too divided. That That's... You know, I'm happy to argue. I'm happy to do. But that's man, that's it's, we're, we're not together as a nation. And what is your favorite curse word? Well, it's it's the one it, it's uh, fire truck is the often, you know, other letter that has a word that has the same letters in it. But you have to know how to use it, when to use it. You can't use it too much. But that would be my most commonly used one. So probably my favorite one. What sound or noise do you love? So I, I play piano and keyboard. So uh, if you think about some of the the real heavy riffs that like Rick Wakeman does in Yes, uh, that's that, that that gets me going. What sound or noise do you hate? You know, when we live in Columbia, Maryland, close to uh, BWI, and um, you know, so when we're in the plane pattern and I'm having a conversation and I can't really hear it, I don't really like that. But I'm usually a big fan of jets and aviation overall. But that sound really just bothers me sometimes. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Wow. I've really gotten into this like 3D editing, you know, getting getting the animation going. I'm enjoying that quite a bit. But I would probably have to say I professional keyboardist. That would be that would be fun. And what profession would you not like to do? Ooh, yeah, nothing comes to mind. You know, Bob Bobsled team. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gate? Uh, good job. Be nice. That'd be nice. Good job. I'm just finishing up with Ron Gula. He is well known for founding companies and being the CEO of Tenable. Uh, he is currently the president and co-founder of Gula Tech Ventures, doing amazing things uh, with uh, philanthropy and investment and at the policy level and doing uh, great work. Thank you for 30 years of contributing to the cybersecurity industry and, you know, uh, for all the uh, things that you are spawning and, and touching today and, and creating the next generation of contributors. And uh, thanks for coming on uh, you know, our show. Hey, thanks for the questions. Thanks for the invite. Keep up the great work yourself. Thank you, Ron. Take care. Talk to you soon. Hi, everyone. This is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, just CSEC. CSEC is a 501c6 nonprofit workforce development association dedicated to helping grow, support, and sustain the professionals charged with the cybersecurity of control systems. We're specifically talking about those systems that have pumps and valves and actuators, real cyber to physical moving parts, and control nearly every aspect of our modern connected industries. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It is my hope you find it inspirational or motivating or revealing or informative, and perhaps at times even a little entertaining. Take care and be well.